Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Wood Talk. Now here are three guys who came, saw, and saw it again. Until they ran out of wood. Mark, Shannon, and Matt. What's going on, everybody? It's Wood Talk. It's show number 483 for September 9th, 2020. On today's show, we're talking about how we design projects. It's a lot of first steps, and we're going to talk about them and what we do. Uh, before we get to that, I want to let you know that Rock <laughs> that Rockler is brought to you by Wood Talk. <laughs> Basically. Kind of. At this point. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Wood Talk <laughs> is brought to you by Rockler. Rockler has been helping customers create with confidence for over 65 years. Head over to rockler.com to check out their Upgrade Your Shop sale, which includes shop upgrades ranging from jigs to clamps to power tools. The sale runs from August 28th to October 1st, so don't miss it. I was kind of expecting it to be like, a, here's a shop in a box kit. <laughs> yeah. Upgrade your shop. There you go. A bigger one. Just hit the, hit the button. Hold cool. on. It takes a, about 30 minutes to download. It might not work after it's done, but at least it's a, it's the next point one number higher. <laughs> Sorry. Oh man. Tangent. And uh, <laughs> if if you want to also help support this crazy show, <laughs> you can do so by going to Patreon.com/slash/WoodTalk and sign up to become a patron of the show. When you sign up, I'll read your name and I'll try and read it in uh, maybe the correct way that I think is the correct way at least. <laughs> this week. <laughs> We'd like Ooh. to thank Sam England, uh, Luke Stoby, Arnie Hetlilidid. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, Chris Krupa, John Graff. Oh, come on, John Graff. Let's get a better name. <laughs> <laughs> too easy, too easy. Oh, too oh, easy. Next one. Hang on for the next one. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, Nima Saros. I'm going to go with that. Renee Weisner. Woe Shop. I like that too. Christopher Eldridge and Bryram's Custom Woodworks. All right, a lot of a lot of Dude, fancy right. ones in there. Good stuff. That's a good one. Thanks. Good job, guys. Yeah. Good names. Thanks for the support, everyone. <laughs> good names. All right. <laughs> Thanks for the support, but good names mostly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're gonna jump into a little bit of kickback here. Uh, Philip called in, and he's got his own little workbench story he wants to tell us. G'day, guys. Uh, Philip Calling from Perth, Western Australia. 
long time listener, first time caller. I think I'm actually only calling in because I have an accent, but you know, there you go. <laughs> so I wanted to tell you my workbench story. Um, and look, first of all, thank you for having the conversation about it. Um, it was something that held me back in my woodworking for a long time. You know, do I make a Rubo or a Nicholson style or, you know, should I just make some legs and put a top on it? Well, while I was humming and hawing about it, I chopped up some 4B2s, put them together with butt joints and slapped a single sheet of three quarter MDF on it. Now that build in itself could be a story. Um, I grew up using only hand tools, but for some reason I thought a circular saw would be best for this job. So I uh, borrowed one, set up the long pieces of wood on saw horses and cut them through the middle. You can guess how that went. Anyway, I had a work surface. I don't know that functional is the right word for it, but you know, but I had one. So, you know, flash forward a couple of years, a couple of house moves and a couple of kids. Um, I finally got a sturdier bench. It's inch and a half, you know, inch and a half thick laminated ash countertop sitting on some cabinets. It's, it's still not what many of your listeners would call a workbench, but, you know, it suits me uh, just fine. The thing I particularly liked about your discussion of benches um, in the last episode was um, the idea of beginner, intermediate and professional benches. And that really you know, it can be unnecessary to have a four inch thick workbench unless you're a full time pro. Um, in my day job, I'm, I'm a classical musician. And one of the beliefs that most of us share is that from the outset, you, you need a top quality instrument. You know, anything that's cheap and nasty or doesn't work perfectly can you know, really affect your development as a musician. But with my woodworking, having a really crappy bench actually helped my development because, you know, it gave me an insight into, you know, different construction methods and it forced me to think about the, the physical nature of, of the different woodworking processes that, that I do. So, look, anyway, um, you've probably heard enough of my accent to last you a little while now, but um, thanks very much for the show. Um, I really appreciate all you guys do for the community. So, yeah, cheers. I'm full, full of accent. It was good, though. I mean, what I found what I found interesting is even the dog had an accent. If you heard the bark in the background, there's a little bit of an Aussie build <laughs> yeah. to it. Had a little Australian going on there. That's uh, <laughs> I mean, the guy's a classical musician. He's got a great accent. He's probably really good looking. What a jerk! He's probably really good looking. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting yeah, the, what he nice. says there. I, I kind of have that same sort of feeling toward hand tools in a lot of cases where. Uh, using a crappy one for a while will really help you appreciate a good one when you get your hands on it. Makes a big difference. True. Uh, thanks for sharing yeah, it. But on me. the converse, using using a crappy violin or a good violin when you first start, they all sound like crap. So you might as well use a good violin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So we have another voicemail. This one's from Sean Graham. Now I'm going to tell you, this is directly to you, Shannon. And he was sending me messages over Twitter uh, letting me know that he sent this voicemail. And then he listened to it afterwards and he goes, oh, crap, he he misheard something or you used the wrong term for something. So he kind of misunderstood. But I told him we would play it on the show anyway, because if there's any chance of us being able to make fun of him, I would like <laughs> to I would like to seize that opportunity. Of course you would. Okay. <laughs> so here's a shot. This is a Sean Graham from uh, Worth Effort Woodworking. Hello there, Giggles, Skinny and uh, uh, uh. Mark, this is Sean calling with kickback on your thong oil episode. First off, you. Second off, Shannon's response to the gentleman that called in with an issue of his four-jaw chuck spinning off the lathe, well, he was absolutely right. It is the mass of the uh, chuck in the gyroscoping action causing it to spin off because its momentum carries it faster than the lathe is slowing down. 
and he is also 100% correct in telling the gentleman to hold on to the chuck and rotate the spindle to remove it from the lathe because those chucks are heavy with lots of sharp points. I mean, they're almost a gladiator, gladiatorial weapon, if that's the right term. Scary devices if they're spinning flying at you. But that was also the academic response where the professor repeats the question as the answer. His true response of putting a washer in between the chuck and the headstock was absolutely wrong. Yeah, it will work. Uh, it will prevent that uh, chuck from just kind of slowly vibrating off. But once it breaks loose, it's going to break loose anyway. Plus, it denies you the brilliant opportunity of spinning your lathe backwards, which really does enhance sanding opportunities because you can sand the grain in both directions. And I find it really enjoyable scraping, doing my finishing scrapes off the side of a bowl that I can actually see not, without having to lean over the lathe and rotating the bowl backwards. It's a wonderful way to do that. The true answer to this gentleman's dilemma are grub screws. There's a reason why they put grub screws on the thread adapters of chucks. And if your thread adapter does not have grub screws on it, it was probably the manufacturer trying to save a little bit of money, but those are readily available. Just make sure the grub screws are tightened down onto the headstock and make sure that headstock is fully seated, metal to metal. That washer answer could induce a little bit of vibration and that vibration at the headstock gets magnified the farther out you go. With that kind of vibration, you will never get a smooth smooth cut, and you have to spend a lot more time sanding. Though, now that y'all are selling for Rockler, maybe that was the angle going for it, selling more sandpaper. You missed an opportunity there, Shannon. <laughs> okay. Is he done? Are you done, Sean? <clears throat> okay. So he said in Twitter, he goes, this he just said, re-listen to his answer. He used the wrong terms, which confused me, but I think we meant the same thing. So I don't know what to make of this. Yeah, I've never heard the term grub screw, but Sean's much more of a turner than I, so I uh -huh. imagine that's the actual term. But I, I think I call them set screws. Okay. I don't know. The screws that 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 are on the actual, um, what would you call that, the arbor? Yeah. I don't know. But I, I, I would have um, I known grub what you meant. Because they grab the shaft. Yeah. They right. Have, it yeah. depends on what's on the bottom. Like rub screws will have a more like a serrated bottom to grab stuff. A stat screw just oh, has like yeah. a single point or something. It, they they right. look the same from the outside. And I think anyone would yeah, know. What I think you meant. I think my point my point was you might your chuck might not have that. In which case, get a better chuck yeah. because I think if it doesn't, like most of the decent chucks have that because it's a major safety feature. If they don't have it, it's like the free one that came with my mini lathe, you know, I mean, it was kind of a piece of junk to begin with. So the fact that it's missing the set screws was probably the one of seven problems with that chuck. So yeah, get a, get a better chuck, but I will actually take exception to the fact that the, the washer will cause vibration. These washers are not thick. Like the one that, that I use, it's, it's a vinyl washer, but it's like the thickness of a piece of paper. So when you crank that down, it really, I mean, there's really very little room for vibration. Then again, I don't have like a big giant lathe. My power lathe is, is a mini lathe and I'm not turning big, big objects on it. So I also, my lathe doesn't go backwards. My foot powered lathes do. I just pedal the opposite direction, <laughs> but my other lathe, it's not fancy enough to go backwards. I have to spin it manually backwards mm -hmm. to do that. So I never even thought about that. So yeah, I'm, I'm not wrong, nor is Sean right. Actually, Sean's probably right. He turns a lot more than I do. So. 
<laughs> well, I think, you know, with the washer thing, uh, it reminds me that when you describe this little washer, it reminds me of a similar material that I have for a dado stack as shims. Yes. And in a certain yeah, way, exactly. we're doing a very similar thing here where, I mean, maybe in, in the case of turning, I think the vibration would probably be more of a factor. Um, but it doesn't seem like something that's causing any problems once it's truly cinched down. It's not going anywhere. I don't see how it would induce vibration. Right. Well, the other thing I would say to Sean, if you're seeing a lot of vibration, Sean, you probably need to sharpen your tools oh, and you probably man. need to present the Ooh, tool a little oh, bit better. You want to rub that bevel, hurts. make sure it's cutting properly. But he said he was using <laughs> scraper tools, which as all turners know, that's they're not real, cheating. They're not so, real tools, right? Yeah. That's not real turning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for that uh, voicemail, Sean, and also uh, Philip. And I think we can get into our main topic today. So we're talking about, uh, you know, it's kind of it's kind of that time of year, right? For a lot of people who don't woodwork year round, this is one of those times of year that you're getting back into the shop. Maybe you're thinking about doing some new projects. So you're thinking about design and what do you do to design a new project? What's the what's the first steps that you go through? So I figured we'd have a little discussion, bat it back and forth and talk about what we personally do. Um, for me, most of mine, most of my design uh, adventures start with a Google search. And, and I say this all the time that I'm not really a great designer and I take a lot of inspiration from things that I see. So uh, one of the first things I do is I, I go into Google and I search for something with the keywords that match what I'm trying to build. Uh, or if I know it's like in a particular style, I will search for just that style because a lot of times you don't need to look at the exact same piece of furniture to get a stylistic influence that you could pull in to something else, right? So uh, if I wanted to do something mid-century modern, I might look at other types of mid-century modern furniture to see if I can incorporate something cool or unique, but it's mid-century modern, so there's pretty much nothing unique that you could do, but <laughs> there's only a few tricks in that playbook. But anyway, uh, I would probably just do all these different Google searches to get some inspiration. And then eventually I like would let it seep into my brain and then start trying to create something. Uh, a lot of times it is pencil and paper. Um, I think more creatively. I don't know about you guys. I, I think much more creatively when I'm drawing on paper versus trying to recreate something in either, you know, SketchUp or Fusion. Like, do you guys have a brain I, that can... I could swear you were going to say you think more creatively when you're drunk. I, uh, that would <laughs> you, not be inaccurate. Kind of, <laughs> for, for, forgive the, the pun, but you kind of drew out the DR in drawing. And I was like, I think more creatively when I'm drunk. Yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> well, you're not wrong. So there's that. Pro tip. Pro tip. I just don't get drunk enough. That's the problem. Uh, but for you guys, can you like get really creative? And I mean, like in the flow kind of creative in a digital space? No. No. I think mostly because no. I'm not proficient enough. Yeah, to do it. I think that's it. That's a hundred percent it for me. I'm like, I, I'm not that good at. It. I'm not fast. It just feels like forced whenever I'm in there trying to get what's in my brain into SketchUp or something. Yeah, I think if and I'm it, like a piece of paper, no problem. It's good. Pencil, just draw some stuff down, and and for and a lot of things, it's like I just need to get some general sense of where I'm going. Yeah, and then I'm I'm in the shop making something like physically to look at. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think if you have to think too much about how you're drawing the line, <laughs> it, it will definitely damper your creativity, right? If I have to sit there and think, okay, now how do I draw this? And then I fail yeah. a few times. Yeah. The the moment's gone. <laughs> right. And I'm just well, upset and pissed off. And then I just, I can't think anymore. And then just, that's it. It's over. Yeah, then you go get Gotta drunk go. so you can get more creative. <laughs> Right. There give, you go. Give me a drink. So it does actually work. It's kind of a warm up period. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, most of those programs, there's, there's kind of like a, um, like a preset, like if you're drawing a curve and it will snap to a certain radius, you know, snap to a certain projection mm -hmm. and there's very little fine tuning in between there. And I'm speaking specifically of SketchUp because that's the one that I use. I'm sure that there are other programs before people start calling in saying, oh, SketchUp sucks. I'm sure there are other programs that cost a lot more that have a lot more refinement to that. But there's something, well, there's no other word for it, very organic about pencil and like sketching, especially when I'm working with things that aren't straight lines. Yeah. You know, and you kind of have to sketch a little and play with the curve. And and, uh, and more often than not, my my sketches are they look like I'm like incorporating shading or something because the, the line gets <laughs> kind of gets fatter and fatter as you play with it. But I find that you, you have to do that um, in order to get to something like you have to make it look too bad. Like the curve's got to go too far yeah. before you can kind of pull back and get it the way you want it. And I just can't do that in a digital. It just doesn't work that way. You can't draw like seven lines in the matter of a second type thing. Yeah. The, and the thing that winds up happening when I do what you're talking about, I'll do that drawing method. I'll find something that looks good on the drawing. And then one of the challenges is then to bring that to the shop and make it look the way you want it to look. And I've had these times where I'll look at it and I'll go, I don't, I don't know what's missing. Something is missing from this stupid little pencil sketch that I made. There's magic there. It looks right. But once I actually try to go full size and, and I'm making it in the shop, I've lost something. So that sort of scaling up from a quick hand drawing into the shop, I've, I've somehow kind of just lost it at that point. And then I struggle to figure out what is the key element in this little hand sketch uh, that, that, I, that I included there that's somehow missing when I try to translate this to a full size project. Sometimes that's it. The curve looks great in a small size, but when you stretch <laughs> it into full size, you're like, ew. Yeah, just doesn't yeah. look right. All right. So, uh, so yeah, that, that pretty much describes those first steps for me. It's a little bit of research. It's a little bit of try to find inspiration, put stuff down on paper. And then there is a point where I do want to go digital. It's when I need to work out, um, you know, proportions or sometimes joinery. And it's not even that I, I don't necessarily know what I'm doing with the joinery. It's that I want to lock it in. If I, if I put it in SketchUp and I know the thickness of my tenons and exactly where the mortises are going to go, I lock that in and then I can kind of print that out and use that as a diagram in the shop when I'm making those actual joints. I don't necessarily need to completely 100% build this thing out in SketchUp. And, and, I, and I'll tell you, most of the time, my drawings are maybe 50% of the way there. Um, the only reason I ever have completed SketchUp drawings is because of Brian Benham. <laughs> so... I, I, I would say that, that's that's pretty far along actually you, you're doing pretty well at 50 percent well it's my 50 percent i mean according to brian it might be 10 percent <laughs> we have to ask so that, him that, that's where mine is kind of more in like the 10 percent range yeah where it's like no joinery nothing's got actual angles on anything just like ah here's some boxy looking thing yeah. just so i can get some key dimensions and there you go have Here, fun use your imagination it'll be fine <laughs> so <laughs> but yeah so i don't often like i do get that question a lot do you have a hundred percent finished sketchup drawing and no i never do it may seem like i do because i want to give that to ever other people to use but it's someone else with more sketchup skill who goes in there and finishes this piece to match what i've actually made um, but you don't you don't well, need that what are start. the chances what are the chances of that 100% finished SketchUp drawing actually being true to the project by the time you're done? Like zero. Well, it takes us like 10 revisions to make it true to the project after I'm done. <laughs> right. 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 So it's like, so. why bother finishing the SketchUp now? Because it's not going to look like that when you're no, done. No, not at all. 
<laughs> oh man. So how about uh, you, Matt? What's, what's your beginning creative process look like? So my wife tells me something, something she likes. <laughs> That's kind of how things kind of start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in all, in all seriousness, no, it's like once I, I find like okay, this is something I actually want to make and I feel inspired to make it, I tend to go out into the world and just kind of see what's already been done, whether that be books or like the Internet or even on Instagram. It's like looking at hashtags mm-hmm. um, just to see what's out there and just to get you know the mind going of what's what's possible. And of course, like most of the things we're going to make are going to be fairly customized too. So I'm also going to be taking a look at, okay, what are the dimensions I need here? Like if it's a, I don't know, whatever the heck it is, how long does it need to be to fit in the space? How tall does it need to be to functional? Things, things of that nature. So I can get like some key dimensions of like a rough idea of how big it's going to be. And then I can get into like what styles are going to be. And then into the minutia of the little detailed design elements of that style is going to fit well with what I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of go from there. A lot of my stuff tends to stay in my mind. I don't really get a whole lot of it out onto paper or into the computer or anything like that. Um, I like to design more on the fly in the shop as I'm working through things and just kind of, you know, I might, might experiment a little bit like on a scrap piece and kind of see how things sort of look um, and then bring it into the actual project. But a lot of times it's just, it's in my mind and I know how to get it out the most effective way for me is just to get out there and start making that thing. Mm-hmm. Do you ever wish you had time or maybe desire to do prototypes with that whole designing on the fly process? Yeah. Well, in a sense, like everything I make is a prototype. You just never made the second one. Yeah. I just, <laughs> there's there's I a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, like most of the things I make them, I'm never going to make this thing again. Yeah. Most likely. So, uh, well, at the same time, I've never been so like, like put off and saddened by how poorly something came out. Like I've never been like, this looks terrible and I hate it. And I wish I, I really wish I would have done something completely different. Right. I've never really, I don't think I've had that experience before. So that's maybe I'm just lucky and it hasn't just happened to me. Yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. Everything seems to be like somehow it works out. Somehow it works out and something looks halfway decent mm-hmm. when I'm done. And I'm happy with it. I think for me, most of the time, if I have a regret on something and want to change something the second time around, it's process oriented. It's like, uh, well, if I knew that was going to happen, I would have done it a slightly different way as opposed to like, I should have moved that rail up a quarter inch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think it all comes down to the end goal, right? You're like, we're basically building stuff for ourselves. I mean, certainly we create content and everything, but you know, we're not trying to create a line of furniture to sell or trying to catch someone's eye in a gallery or something with something mm-hmm. new. We're not trying to break any new ground. Yeah. And I think like <clears throat> I'm thinking back to that fine woodworking live that um, the three of us were at, uh, whatever that was. And there was the uh, Michael Fortune seminar and he had I think it was Aspen. Aspen Golem was up there um, talking about prototyping and like her stuff was just awesome, like really, really cool designs. And it was so obvious that they came through like multiple iterations mm-hmm. and like you can actually see she would have the different prototypes up there and you can see kind of the the birth of what happened and you look at it and go, wow, that's awesome. And, and you know, the only way you could get there was by going through these other iterations. But again, that's like her goal is is more artist yeah. than furniture maker. And the goal is to create a statement or have some sort of overlying artistic 
reasoning meaning to the piece of furniture, you know? And I keep going back to, um, was it Brandon Gore on that, um, that reality show that mm-hmm. said furniture, uh, without functionality is just art. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't Brandon. Somebody it on sounds that like show something said, he that. Said. you know, and, and that continues to be my mantra, like furniture must be functional or it's just art. You know, I might as well be David Marks making really cool stuff that hangs on the wall, mm-hmm. you know, because <laughs> unless you can sit in it or store something in that drawer or put your, you know, your beer on the tabletop, it's not functional. And therefore, you know, you, you, yeah, it's artwork. Well, I, I think, think that totally changes your design process. If that's your goal yeah. is to create beautiful artwork. Well, Shannon, that's a, a super important point that I think we have to kind of put up as a disclaimer here. The three of us build in this weird little vacuum <laughs> of just artists. like making things we want to make and the end result, once it's done, we're, we're fine. And we move on to the next thing. Um, if right. people listening to this are not like us, they, maybe they do want to build a furniture line or something. Um, they may not like this advice and this may not be the best advice as we relate, like relate to them what we do. I'm thinking about experiences I've had with, um, three in particular, good furniture makers that I've had to document a project with. So there's Daryl Peart, Philip and uh jury. All three of those guys drove me nuts with changes <laughs> that they've made where they may give me a template and they go, well, here's a template, but I actually, I changed that. It's like a quarter inch shorter now. Or, you know, that leg, well, in this one, it's, it's an inch at the bottom, but I've gone to uh, seven eighths on that. And I'm like, why do you keep messing with things? Like you're confusing the hell out of the, the plan because I am looking for a number, but they continue to modify. So that's just in the nature of these people who are building the furniture for a living and maybe trying to develop a line of furniture. Mm-hmm. They're going to constantly improve it until, well, maybe they'll never be totally happy with it, but you know, that's, that's their curse. You know, that's what they're trying to do. So it just made me realize that depending on who the person is listening to this, what we do may not be the, the way to handle this. You know, prototyping and iterating and, and improving over time may be the best thing for them to do. Yeah, and if you're doing sure. something custom for someone, you're probably going to have a fully fleshed out plan or sketch or something. Yeah. Because you're actually kind of trying to convey to that customer, like, this is what I'm going to make, just so you know. Sure. That's it. Well, the, the closest that I've come to like a line is actually building an entire room worth of furniture. Mm-hmm. My uh, guest bedroom in my house has been all the furniture in there is stuff that I've built. And it's kind of different, yet it all ties together. In some respects, it ties together because I used uh, cherry as the primary throughout. But, you know, they're totally disparate um, styles. Like the bedside table is very federal Sheridan style. And the bed itself is like contemporary shaker. Um, uh, the, the blanket chest is, is more contemporary as well. But then I've got this like colonial cabinet in the corner. So like on paper, you're like, what the hell? But there's subtle little design elements in each one that kind of tie them all together. Mm-hmm. And I do remember having like what you're talking about, Mark, where it's like, oh, I'm going to move that to seven eights. I'm going to move that up a little bit. And that was all happening after the fact, because you kind of step back and look at all of your drawings together. You're like, okay, this sticks out. So I need to make it look like it belongs to these other four pieces. That's the closest that I could get to it. And I do remember that was a big part of it, like tiny little changes to kind of echo part of a design in another piece and kind of bring it forward into this current piece. That was the only way that I could make that work. Yeah. Okay. That was as designy as I've ever gotten, I think. Right. 
I don't know if I would like it or or not. I'm trying to think about what it would be like to build from that perspective because it's like you you have the design, you're 95% of the way there. But then that last 5%, you may spend the rest of your life <laughs> trying to to figure that out. Right, right. That's Well, and that's that's generally why function is always so important to me. Um I mean, I'm kind of like uh you mark where I'll go to sketch up at some point, but I tend to actually start there and I flesh out the boxes. You know, I flesh out the function, I flesh out the size of the drawers or the tabletop size, or like Matt said, if it's got to fit in a certain space. And that just starts with just a series of, of cubes, you know, yeah. in, in, in SketchUp clumped together. I mean, they're not even, I, I, I don't even like draw the individual sides of a case. I just blow out a cube and like use the push pull tool to make it look hollow, you know, and that's it. Um, and then I come up with a proportion and I figure out the actual size of the drawer opening, all that stuff. And then I scribble in the details. Let's add a pretty foot, you know, or this looks kind of clunky. It needs mm -hmm. to be narrower here and all, but I'm trying to maintain that, that original function and kind of work around it from there. Um, and I do find that I spend a fair amount of time adjusting like the width of pieces to go with a different look. You know, I, I kind of, maybe it's, maybe it's my, I'll call it my own design idea, which means it's stolen from like 30 other people. But <laughs> I do kind of like the idea of varying the width of parts and also varying the reveal kind of like the green and green furniture. You can find like seven different reveals, you know, like just a quarter inch from the leg to the apron and then a quarter inch to the drawer front. And then you know, there's all these little steps and different kind of levels throughout the design. I do kind of like playing with that. But that only happens after I've got the whole thing kind of mocked up and proportions kind of figured out. And then you futz around with the lines and the, the widths mm -hmm. and all that fun stuff. So, so it happens in reverse, I think, from what you were talking about. Yeah. Curious how you guys handle things like, um, I don't know, th th this. I know this is something that troubled me when I first started woodworking and it was a lot of George Walker's uh, teaching that helped me understand, you know, when... When you don't necessarily immediately know by eye what size a thing should be. So let's talk about like a table apron. You know, you've got your legs worked out. How wide should the apron be? Or if you're doing the rails and styles on a door, a door frame, uh, should the rails be wider, the styles be wider, uh, and how wide should they be, you know, to make it look right in this cabinet that you're building? Um, so I would go back and forth on these numbers and it's like, well, that looks right. And then I change it and go, well, that looks good too. <laughs> Like, how do I figure out which one is the right one? So it was George Walker uh, in one of his videos. Uh, I can't remember the name. We reviewed it a long time ago, uh, Matt Vanderlist and I. Uh, it was the the idea of ratios. And, and there's the whole golden ratio thing that people like to talk about. But that's such a weird number. And while that may be fine, uh, some of the things in, in actual architecture and classic forms, it's actually done with whole number ratios. And that's what the Walker talks about. That was an eye opener because like, OK, now I can wrap my head around that so that if you have a, a side that's three quarters of an inch and you're going to put a piece, a piece of trim on that or you have a little door, a good whole number ratio would be to double it. Right. So now it's an inch and a half for this rail that you're making or the style that you're making. So the ratio thing is like, well, when in doubt, at least make sure it's wholly divisible, you know, by other parts in the project. And then it, it's some even if it's not perfect it's still somewhat more harmonious, right? So I'm curious to hear from you guys. Do you, do you have a system like that? Or do you simply go by, this is a good number. It makes sense. It looks good. And I'm happy with it. Yes. 
<laughs> no, the whole number thing is, is kind of always in the back of my mind. Um, oftentimes I'll do a, like a, a double check on myself. Like here's this box that I've created. Well, what is that? You know, and I go, okay, well it's two to three. Okay. I feel good about that. You know, mm-hmm. or if it comes out some kind of weird, <clears throat> you know, all right, well, if I make it two inches wider, then it's a whole number ratio. And I, I feel much better with yeah. that. I have never really had success with the golden ratio. Um, I know that it supposedly works, but maybe I'm just math, you know, a math idiot. <laughs> I'm just, I can't easily work it out in, in my head. The other thing that will guide me in those situations is the joinery itself. If I'm trying to figure out how wide, you know, to use your example, Mark, how wide to make the apron of the table. Well, what happens if I put a tenon on that? Um, you know, how wide, you know, if the apron's three inches wide, it's like, well, crap, if I'm going to put up you know, quarter inch shoulder on both sides, you know, now I'm, I'm down to this narrower tenon and how is that tenon going to go into the leg? Well, I'm going to, it's a, it's kind of a skinny tenon, so I should make it project a little bit further in the leg. Well, the legs only one and three quarter inches thick. So then I have to kind of figure out what's the way to, in other words, the way I resolve it is by trying to create uh, lasting joinery. Mm-hmm. And if I have to make the apron a half inch or one inch wider in order to make better joint, then the joint wins. Yeah. It's definitely a dance, right? Between the, the joinery and what you want this thing to look like. Whatever you designed, you got to yeah. make it work in the shop. Yeah. A dance. A little dance. A dance. That's it. Um, Matt, what do you do? Uh, I don't generally use any ratios or like solid rules in my designs. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of just do what looks right. And I guess going back to my whole like in the shop prototyping thing, I tend, I, I have more stock than I could ever use in my lifetime. So I, I, I cut things wide or I cut things thick. Yeah. And then I look at them and say, yeah, that's too big. Take some more off. Uh, but interestingly enough, my most recent experience with this was doing the, the vanity mirror. I was trying to figure out what the heck the like a good ratio for the height to the width of the mirror should be to make it look like good mm-hmm. and still be functional. So I was kind of I was playing around with different sizes and I'm like, OK, I, I cut the the height down like four times just to get it to like closer. And I actually ended up settling at a uh, uh, one and a quarter ratio or whatever. One, the, the, the height is 125% of the width. That seemed to look mm-hmm. okay and not be huge. Okay. I started at like the, the width of the mirror is limited, is a limiting factor. So it's limited to 22. So I was going to do like 30 or 32 tall. I'm like, this is huge. Like that's a big mirror. It's a tall mirror. And I'm like, oh, let's yeah. cut it down a little bit. I got down to like thirty, and then like I got down to like like twenty eight is the final kind of number. So it was, it was okay. uh, I don't know, timely I guess in that sense. But like I just had extra stock. I just kept cutting it shorter. Just start big and just cut it till it looks good. <laughs> that's quite the luxury you have there, sir. Well, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you think these things grow on trees or what? It grows in trees in this oh, case. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you uh, you I, develop I your own design system, Matt, you should call it the Harry ratio. The Harry, oh, I like that. There we go. Like, like who's this Harry guy? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's H H A I. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh man, well, you know who uh, who always knows the right Harry ratio? Oh boy, Harry Harry Rockler. <laughs> yeah, Harry Rockler. <laughs> Isn't his name uh, Nordy? The guy that started yeah, Rockler. But I, th- I think his nickname was Harry. So. <laughs> really? Well, it is, it is now. It is now. For this good oh, role, it is. This is great. Good stuff. 
All right. Well, we, of course, want to let you know that Rockler is a sponsor of the show. And if you're looking for new project inspiration, Rockler offers over 50 free plans that you can follow. The plans range from shop projects. They uh, mentioned the outfeed table designed by Matt Cremona, the one and only renowned woodworker. Optional live edge slab top or Baltic birch, whatever you want to do. And if you want to know how he designed it, he just bought big wood and made it a little smaller until it looked good. <laughs> so the numbers don't make any sense. That works. <laughs> uh, they also have uh, plans for furniture for the house, like a new coffee table, uh, to even giftable small projects like a wireless speaker box. All that can be found at rockler.com slash free dash plans. Rockler even has a whole project ideas section on their website where you can find a gallery with thousands of customer project images and a holiday gift guide. And you know what, guys? You know what's coming up soon? The holidays? Halloween. Ava's birthday. But also, but also Halloween. And then Christmas. And Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Nicole reminded me Thanksgiving. (laughs) Uh, And then, of course, Christmas. And we make gifts for people. So they got tons of uh, gift ideas in her gift guide. And uh, you can find all this stuff at rockler.com slash project dash ideas. <gasps> and uh, if you're short on inspiration, you want to head over there and see what's going on. 50 free plans. Can't beat that. So uh, thank you, Rockler. As long as it's not 10,000 free say, plans. I'm not happy to do with 16. That's true. 16,000 free plans. We know who that is. Thank you, Ted. Paid. I should have to pay for those. They're not free. Never mind. They probably were free somewhere else. They should be. You should be paying. Uh, they should be paying you to take them as well. <laughs> From what I've heard with the quality of those. Anyway, but not at Rockler. Rockler stuff is really good. So go check it out. Thank you for sponsoring the show, Rockler. Okie doke. So I wanted to kind of quickly go over anything you guys have for tricks to get through a design block. Um, I usually get blocked within like the first five minutes of designing because I'm just not very good at it. Uh, but but I hit a wall yep. Yep. and Nicole knows when this happens because I come in, in into the kitchen and I'm just like, I'm I'm just over it. I'm totally done. Uh, so for me, one of the best things I could do to get over a design block is to take a break. Uh, the longer I, I, once I hit that wall, the longer I try to force my way through it, uh, the less likely it is that I'm actually going to find a resolution. So a lot of times I just take a break. So what do you guys do if you hit that, uh, that wall and you just can't figure out a problem? I listen to wood talk. Hey, that's a good idea. Oh boy. After while shopping on rockler.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Way to go. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I listen to the wood and I whisper at it. No, mm. when, when I run into issues and I'm like trying to figure out this doesn't work well here, I let the wood tell me what to do by like paying attention to the wood grain. Um, like say I'm trying to figure out the curve on an apron or whatever. Um, I'll look at the board that either I've already selected or I'll look at the boards that I have and I'll actually try to use the curvature in the wood itself to help mm-hmm. me. And that's what I want to go with. And then I find that I'm able to do that through the rest of the project. Well, I, you know, I did it on this particular apron. So in making the taper of this leg, let's try to get it to follow the, the, the wood a little bit better here. So mm-hmm. in general, where I'm stuck, I just let the wood grain solve it for me. Nice. What about you, Matt? Uh, Definitely the break thing. I tend to, well, even with the, the design stuff, because a lot of it's still kind of mental for me. It's like I got to go do something where I can be like moving around and doing something, but my mind can be elsewhere. Yeah. So like mowing the lawn or shoveling sawdust, something like that. Mm-hmm. That that really helps me just kind of get the, the juices flowing in there. I think maybe because you know, your heart rates up a little bit and you're kind of moving around it. Yeah. tends to help with the uh the design thing 
little exercise. Yeah. Uh, Shannon, you brought up a really good trick earlier. Uh, this is something that, that works for me a lot of the time. If I can't decide between two measurements, let's say two, two things, it doesn't affect the project other than visual. How do I know which is the right one? And uh, you, you mentioned kind of going to the extremes of both ends, draw it at one extreme, mm-hmm. draw it at the other extreme. You, you can totally see that both of those are not the right answer. And you kind of keep narrowing it down until you, you find the range of correct answers, because there's usually not just one. Right. But you could you could easily identify the things that don't look good. So once you identify those extremes, keep bringing it in closer and closer. And then eventually you narrow down to a range of numbers that will probably all look decent until you find your favorite. That's that's one thing that gets me through some of those number challenges. Also procrastinating yeah. also helps. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's a highly <laughs> effective tool. Yeah. All right. So we're going to each point out uh, a design resource that you might want to check out. And uh, if you want to dig in deeper on this whole design thing, uh, lots of great information out there. I mentioned George Walker and uh, he's just one of my favorites. I really, his style, uh, I really identified with. And there is a book that we've recommended in the past by Hand and I, which is a uh, a co-written thing by uh, Jim Tolpin and George Walker. You can find it at lostartpress.com in their books section. Do not buy it on Amazon because I think there's resellers selling it for like $100. <laughs> and it's yeah. not a cheap book, but it ain't $100. So uh, go directly to Lost Art Press and you will find a good uh, legal copy of that one. Nice. Um, <clears throat> they haven't done it in quite a while, but Fine Woodworking Magazine put out these design books. Um, there's nine of them, I think. Mm-hmm. I think nine was the last one. Um, and it's pretty interesting. I mean, you can find, you know, the early ones, design book one, two, three, four, et cetera, you know, usually on like the Amazon used marketplace or just various places, eBay and such. And if for no other reason, it's kind of interesting to see the, um, like the time warp, you go back into the eighties and look at the furniture that was really popular. That was basically all the stuff that shows up in the pages of fine working magazine, like in the cust- in the reader gallery, this is what it is, but there's, they're broken into you know, tables, cabinets, uh, chairs, et cetera. And it's just kind of a great place to just quickly kind of thumb through it. And and that's where Google images I find starts to break down. I can't physically flip through the pages and just kind of see what grabs my eye. You're just kind of assaulted with a thousand images and that doesn't end up working for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that brings me to the next thing. Um, look for or Google any, any major museum, like the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Renwood Gallery or, you know, anything like that, big name, they will have like a coffee table book or seven. Um, now these also get quite expensive, but you also can find a lot of them just in Google books for free. And there's just image after image after image of supposed masterpieces. You know, these are the, the pinnacle of that particular form and can really give you a good kind of place to start. And then finally, if I can throw one more in specifically, Matt Kenny's box book. Mm-hmm. He has a whole f- section in the front about design. That book is not about building boxes. It's not even close to about building boxes. It's all about design. And of course, Matt has a very um, distinct style, I think, of design, but he does really do a good job of laying out his steps and the things to think about and whether or not you, you know, if you follow those steps, your projects will end up looking like Matt Kenny's projects. Um, But it does give you a lot to think about. I mean, even if you just read that like five page chapter at the beginning on design, um, it's 
really good. I think um, kudos to Matt. He put together a really, really good book. And you see those principles in play in each of the boxes that he built. What is that called? Like 50 boxes or 365 boxes or a box a day? Keeps box the doctor a day or away. something, right? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Just, just Google Matt box, Kenny box and you'll find it. 52, cool. 52 boxes in 52 weeks. And like, yeah, that's like what that. it is. Yeah. yeah. Something over the course of a year. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Nothing crazy like that. But my, my little thing is to use Pinterest. Cause uh, you could you can make the little boards. Mm-hmm. So you can go through and you can do image. Like even if you don't even have, if you don't find it on Pinterest, you can still pin things from the internet into your board. So it's a really nice way to kind of collect all the ideas of pieces that you're looking at that maybe you want to pull in some element from. So you can put little notes next to each, uh, each image you pull in. So if you like this little piece of this one, you can note that in your, on your board and you can just have one way to look at all the little things that you're sort of being inspired by for that one piece. Nice. I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so do most of the mothers out there in the world. Oh, that's not true. The mothers know what's going on. You know, they know what's up. Moms know what's up. (laughs) Choosy moms choose Pinterest. All right. So that just about does it for us. Remember that we are proudly sponsored by Rockler. Rockler is a family owned business since 1954. They're your go-to source for high quality and innovative woodworking tools, finishing supplies, hardware, lumber, and expert advice. Whether you're building a simple bookshelf, a custom desk, or new kitchen cabinets, Rockler has everything you need to make your project a success. Visit rockler.com and use the code WOODTALK, all one word, at checkout and receive free shipping on most orders over $39. Right on. And if you have questions about design, we're probably not the people to send those to. Nope. So don't do not do that. Or, or do, and maybe we'll read them on the show. Maybe we'll talk about them in some future Q&A episode. But regardless, send those questions to woodtalkshow.com. You can fill out a form there or you can send us a voicemail. Record it, record it, record it on your voice memo app and email that to woodtalkshow at gmail.com. I just forgot the email address for a second there. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) Send it to something at gmail.com. And of course, you can also find us on Instagram. We're also there at woodtalkshow. And, you know, I want to hear about your designs. I want to hear about a piece that you designed that you didn't like. Ah, And how did you fix it? Or did you fix it? Or are you just like Matt? You're like, I'll never build this again. So I'm happy with it. I'm going to settle with whatever (laughs) this design is. I want to hear not about your design successes, but your design failures. So find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on the Facebook or whatever, and and let us know. And if you can, tag it. Hashtag Woodtalk483. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. And we will catch you next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.